The American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Hello, I'm Nitin Seem. Thank you for joining us today for a podcast in which we discuss a topic that has dominated the conversation in pulmonary medicine in the last year, treatment of idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, or IPF. We'll discuss the article, Efficacy of Nintedinib in IPF Across Pre-Specified Subgroups in Impulses. This was published in the January 15, 2016 American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care of Medicine. I'm joined by an author of the study, the first author, Dr. Ulrich Kostabel, who is a senior consultant at Roerland Clinic and a professor at the University of Essen in Essen, Germany. And I'm also joined by the first author of the associated editorial, Dr. Atoll Wells, professor of respiratory medicine at the Royal Bromsden Hospital and head of the academic unit of interstitial lung disease, London, United Kingdom. So, Dr. Costabel, I'd like to start the podcast with a question for you regarding disclosure. Your paper is based on data from the two impulsive trials of nintedinib treatment for IPF. Since Impulsus is industry-sponsored, and in addition, two of the authors on this paper work for the sponsor, I wanted to start the podcast to give you an opportunity to disclose your work specifically with the sponsor and regarding the manuscript itself, how editorial control was assigned. Oh, yes. So I was actually involved in the Nintendonib clinical development from the beginning for the sponsor. I was on the steering committee of both the Tomorrow trial and the Impulses trials and gave my input and feedback on trial design and so on. So that was actually my major involvement with the sponsor. I received honoraria for, for this steering board activity and also for participating at the clinical trial investigator on both trials. We had recruited quite a number of patients for both trials. So that was my actually um, relationship with the sponsor and to control that the data in uh, in, a, in a manuscript are correctly edited and so on. I mean, all authors designed the study had access to the data. The data were analyzed by a statistician from BI and then Fleischmann-Hillard uh, helped with the draft of the medical paper. So then all authors were fully, fully responsible for all content and editorial decisions were involved at all stages of the manuscript development and have approved the final version of the manuscript. So that reflects really the joint author's interpretation and conclusions. Dr. Wells, in late 2014, the United States Food and Drug Administration approved both nintedinib and profenadone, which were the first drugs ever approved by the FDA for IPF. After so many years without an effective treatment for IPF, we finally have treatment options, and now two of them. I was hoping we could start the podcast before we get really into the meat of the current uh, paper by providing some background for our listeners regarding the data behind the FDA approval decision for nintedinib and profenadone. Yes, I think it is, it's good to break this question down into two parts. How strong are the data and how consistent are the data? So at the time both drugs were approved, it had become clear that there was 
a major treatment effect on decline in forced vital capacity. And this endpoint is pivotal in IPF. Decline in forced vital capacity has been the major prediction of the mortality survival curves downstream from a monitored period. So decline in FVC is a huge predictor of increased mortality. And it became clear this was consistent across most trials and in the pivotal 2014 trials this effect was independent of the way in which FVC was analysed that there was a reduction in FVC decline by of the order of 50%, 40 to 50%, 50%, depending on the exact method of analysis. So you have a striking effect on FVC decline as the major predictor of subsequent mortality. But this effect had actually been seen in earlier studies, and so perhaps the second part of the question is why it took as long as it did for approval to be given. And this was essentially about consistency between studies. If you take the agents separately, there had been three prior trials that were genuine phase three studies of perfenidone. One of these in Japan, the data were not available for analysis by FDA to the usual rigorous degree that the agency requires. One of the studies was an outlier, and it became more clearly an outlier when the fourth study was performed. And this was the negative of the two capacity studies. If we're putting a label on this study, I think you would view it as a maybe study rather than a negative study. And in retrospect, it has become clearer that this was likely to be an aberrant placebo arm, resulting in a reduced effect on FVC in that particular study. So I think it could reasonably be accepted that at the time of earlier review, the evidence was a little conflicting on perthenidone, and the FDA took the view that a further study was required. And although the decision at the time was disappointing, the result now is that we are very secure about the treatment benefit with the addition of the fourth study. So the timing was such as to take aboard consistency and in the case of nintetinib, there really wasn't a maybe study. You had a phase two study, a little underpowered, and therefore strong trends were marginally significant, but that could be explained by powering of the phase two study and then definitive results in the paired phase three studies. Dr. Costaville, after Dr. Wells has sort of provided the background and talked about the, the prior data, we want to talk about the current study published in the Blue Journal for the January 15th issue. So in this study, you looked at the prior phase three data from uh, two impulsive studies. And as Dr. Wells mentioned, Nintednib significantly slowed progression of IPF based on FEC measurement in these studies. So you looked at pool data from impulsus one and two to determine if there was efficacy of Nintednib uh, if it varied in pre-specified subgroups. So I was hoping you could tell our listeners which subgroups you decided to study and why. And secondly, what was your pre-analysis hypothesis? Were you thinking there were specific subgroups that may do better with treatment with nintendin? Well, as we know, IPF is a heterogeneous disease, and the clinical phenotype may be 
very different from patient to patient. So we have slow responders, fast responders. We have a subset of non-smokers, a subset of smokers, including patients with emphysema. And this trial was run worldwide, in, in a, also in a lot of Asian countries. And we know from Asian data that maybe the risk of acute exacerbation, which is an important key secondary endpoint in the impulses trials, is different or was supposed to be different in Asians versus the, the white population. And so it seemed reasonable to look in such a subgroup analysis to split up the patients into subgroup with the objective to investigate potential associations of demographic and clinical various variables with the effect of nintadenib in these subjects with IPF. And we specifically looked at the following subgroups. We looked at male versus female. We looked at younger versus older. The cut was at 65 years because there were also some hypotheses that maybe the disease is more rapidly progressing in the elderly. You know, the GAP score, which really assesses the severity of the disease and is a prognostic factor, gives one point for male sex and also I think one point for older patients. So these are important predictors. We chose an FVC below or above 70%. We chose 70% because it's close to the mean value of the lung function, a little bit lower than the mean, but so that we can have a reasonable number of in both subgroups for analysis. So it's more or less one of the borders between early and more moderate disease. Then we looked at the St. George's Respiratory Questionnaire total score, where there's a below 40 or above 40. We looked, as I said, never smokers, whether there's ex and current smokers. And finally, there are some um, co-treatment medications like corticosteroids versus yes or no, and bronchodilator use, yes or no. So these were actually the subgroups that were tested. So Dr. Costabella wanted to then talk about the, the study findings. So you mentioned these are very logical, preset-specified subgroups to study, and you did not find any significant difference in the effect of nintednib in any of these subgroups when looking at the primary endpoint reduction in, in FVC, or important secondary endpoints of time to first acute exacerbation or changes in the St. George's Respiratory Questionnaire. So I'd like to ask you, first of all, in general, what were your thoughts on your study findings, and are there any particular findings you wish to highlight? Uh, yes, what you said, that is correct. From a statistical point of view, there was not a significant treatment effect between the subgroups, but I'm just a simple clinician. I'm not a statistician. And if I look at some figures in the paper, let's say like the figure three, where you see the acute exacerbations, it's really jumping to your eyes that in one subgroup there occurred many more exacerbations than in the other one. And it was very interesting to see that in the more severely impaired subgroup with an FVC below 70%, there were around 15% acute exacerbations in one year. So that's really a, quite a considerable amount, 15%. And in this subgroup, actually, the, the risk of acute exacerbations was reduced by 50%. On the other hand, the subgroup with an FVC above 70% almost experienced no acute exacerbations. The percentage was 3%, and this percentage was the same whether you were on placebo or on nintedanib. So 
Obviously, if you look at the different subgroups, there was a really a borderline significant effect of nintidanib in the subgroup with a poor lung function, and there was no significant effect in the subgroup with lung function. Having said that, maybe nintidanib will also have an effect in the a good subgroup, but you need maybe thousands of patients to prove that because if you have just a 3% event rate, it is clear that this study was completely under power to show that effect in the subgroup with uh, FVC above 50%. And another similar effect was also seen in the St. George's Respiratory Quality of Life total score. Again, overall, there was not a different treatment effect by subgroup interaction. But if you look again at the subgroup with a more impaired lung function, first they had a higher baseline level of the St. George's Respiratory Questionnaire, which it was higher, so the chance that the drug can affect it was also higher, and there was a more pronounced effect on reduction in the St. George's Respiratory Question total score in this poorly preserved lung function subgroup. In the other subgroup with better lung function, there was no effect. So obviously, and that is also interesting, that changes in quality of life, the patients will not know them when he still has good lung function. So these changes will also only be evident when the lung function has decreased to a certain level because when the lung function is still good, the patient can walk, can do exercise, and he will not notice it. And then also the drug has, of course, you need a lot, a lot of patients, a huge number of patients to show in that situation then a significant effect. Well, thank you, Dr. Costabel, for summarizing the study findings. Dr. Wells, I'd like to follow up with you and have, get your response to some of what Dr. Costabel mentioned. First of all, I would say I, I was surprised that there was no statistical difference in nintendinib in the various subgroups. And I wonder if, you know, we, we think that that could just be related to a lack of power, given that you're having smaller N when you're looking at multiple subgroups. I think that's something that Dr. Costabel just alluded to. But despite those findings, I also would like you to comment about Dr. Costabel mentioning, you know, he was struck by the, the differences in acute exacerbations with nintendinib in patients, particularly in patients with the lower FVC. It was a set of findings which at first sight, I suppose, was a little surprising. And yet, once you knew the answer, it was surprising no longer. So let me make that clear. There had been the sense from historical clinical studies that older patients and males had a worse outcome. But the question always was whether that was related to progression of disease as judged by serial forced vital capacity. So older patients had more comorbidities that can add to mortality. And of course, comorbidities that are major are airbrushed out of these studies. Their exclusion criteria, if you have severe cardiac disease or malignancy, you're not included. And the question with age was whether there was diagnostic contamination, especially in some of the older studies, to what extent when the older clinical studies were performed was the diagnosis of IPF rigorous. And in younger patients, especially younger women, were some patients included with better outcomes with nonspecific interstitial pneumonia, hypersensitivity pneumonitis in that group. So finding that in the end, age and gender did not have an impact on treatment effects wasn't really a surprise. It was confirmation of suspicion that perhaps age and gender have been overstated in importance when it comes to decline in FVC. And indeed, the gap separation is more about mortality than predicting decline in FVC. So 
Those were the first subgroup analyses to focus on. Then the next question was about severity and does severity matter? And here I'm talking about the FEC threshold of 70% and the absence of a difference in treatment effect above and below that threshold. Now, I was perhaps slightly surprised because one might have expected that it included in the milder group were at least some patients with preclinical disease. Now, it's difficult to judge this. If a patient has been enrolled in a treatment trial, it might well be that you are looking at patients with mild FVC decline that do have symptoms and therefore their disease is not subclinical. But one might have expected that some patients were picked up incidentally and this might have meant that in milder disease you had a on average lesser treatment effect we did not see that so you may well be right there may be a subgroup of patients which is simply too small within the milder group that have preclinical disease but in that case we don't get this from the current study and one of the problems is that the FVC threshold does not really give us this FVC thresholds are important because they're used by regulatory bodies, but at the end of the day, the FVC is not a great measure of baseline severity in IPF. It's not a great measure because concurrent emphysema is quite common, although bad emphysema was ruled out of the ASCEND study. It was not necessarily so excluded in the impulsive data, although there was a provision not to include predominant emphysema, I think. So sometimes the FVC is preserved because of emphysema and you actually have IPF that is more severe. Sometimes the patient has started before their disease with a very high FVC, 130%. So 90% actually represents a major reduction. So I think the problem is less a problem of powering and more a problem that FVC is a blunt threshold for severity so, Dr. Wells, just to follow up um, what you mentioned, that, that the FEC threshold is problematic, but it is being used by regulatory bodies to guide which patients should receive IPF treatments. And an example in your editorial was, you know, a patient who might have a premorbid FEC of 120%, though we would know that because they wouldn't, they would be asymptomatic and not have an FEC check, and now have clinically important disease, but they have an FEC greater than 80%, or the patient with emphysema, as you mentioned. So, obviously, I think... At, as we go forward, it's about identifying what the appropriate thresholds are. So I would ask you if you had thoughts at this point, based on the available data, what do you think would be a better way to identify when to initiate treatment? Thank you. It's a very good question. It's a very difficult question. And I think to start this, I'd like to touch on the essential difference between clinical practice and clinical trial practice. This applies to endpoints, it applies to severity thresholds. In clinical trials, you have to have a primary endpoint. In clinical practice, you don't have a primary endpoint. You are putting together changes in a number of variables, change in FVC, change in DLCO, change in symptoms, and sometimes change in imaging. And in clinical practice, you are often very certain of decline being robust or not, when you have a multidisciplinary approach, but you're not allowed to do that in clinical trials, you've got to pick a primary endpoint, which candidly will not be as accurate as a multidisciplinary assessment. 
And exactly the same thing applies to the assessment of disease severity. Each and every measure we might use has flaws, and we are most accurate when we bring measures together. It's really like the legend of, of the three blind men and the elephant. You actually get the best sense of the elephant when you bring together the input from the three blind men who are examining the elephant. You have the most robust sense of the nature of the elephant, and it's exactly the same with the assessment of disease severity. So, for example, an FVC is at, let us say, 95%, but the DLCO is at 55%. On examination of the scan, you have moderately extensive interstitial lung disease. You don't have emphysema in this case, and you have limiting dyspnea. And from this, you would conclude that despite mild disease, as judged by FVC, a multidisciplinary approach establishes that disease is at least moderately severe, and it is then very likely in this patient that the FVC did begin at 130%. Now, you don't have the slightest notion from FVC alone that this is the case. Put together these measures, and this is the bread and butter of what experienced physicians do, put these various measures together and you have a rather secure sense of disease severity. So the problem with thresholds, and I'm afraid it's a problem with any threshold you might use, is that they are simply not equal to clinical reality. And so it has seemed paradoxical to me that regulatory bodies often support prescription of therapies at expert centres but they do not allow expert centres to bring their expertise to bear to judge the clinical severity of disease. Thank you, Dr. Wells, and I, I think that is very helpful. I think the challenge often becomes that regulatory bodies want to pick a single threshold, but it really seems that there needs to be a, a combination of a variety of relevant clinical factors, and we need to have enough data to validate that. So I appreciate your comments. I'd like to bring it back then to Dr. Costabel. Obviously, I, I want to spend a little bit more time about you know who we treat and, and, and how we treat them because I think that's the difficult clinical question for, for many of us now having patients with, with uh, IPF. We finally have something we can do, but we don't know, you know what to use and when. So obviously your manuscript in the Blue Journal adds to the body of literature, and there does not uh, appear to be a particular phenotype of IPF patients to treat with antifibrotic therapy, but it appears based on your work that there's a benefit across the board. So I'd ask your thoughts on when do you recommend initiating therapy? Very important question, which has brought up at many, many workshops and at meetings recently, when should we really initiate treatment? And of course, there are some colleagues who say, uh, okay, biologically, IPF is a disease like cancer, irreversibly progressive, and so let's start as early as possible once a patient has been diagnosed, ju just start treatment. Well, I think it's not really biologically just the same as cancer. In cancer, you get the risk of metastasis, right? In IPF, you don't have that risk at least. It's just the risk of disease progression and of acute exacerbations that you want to get off on with prophylactically by starting early treatment. Having said that, it is clear that the two drugs can prevent disease progression. They cannot block it completely. It can slow the progression of disease by 50%. 
On the other hand, this was shown in a large trial population, mean values. An individual patient with IPF may be quite stable over a considerable period of time. For instance, in both of these trials, there were percentages between 10 and 20% of patients or even higher who were really stable after 52 weeks or had only a minor progression. I think in the nintendinib trial, uh, up to 40% of the patients had disease progression that was less than 5%, and that is associated with a low risk of mortality. So should we really treat patients who are not progressive? And uh, this is, uh, for me, the most difficult question. So if a patient comes to see me for the first time, I always ask the question, how was your uh, how were symptoms one year before? And if he says, okay, one year before I did well, and now I'm increasingly breathlessness, this is for me an evidence from his history that this disease is progressive. I don't need to look at the lung function. That is, for me, a reason to start treatment. Then if he says, okay, I'm quite fine, I don't see major changes in, in this issue, I still can exercise quite well, so I look at his lung function, and if the lung function is still quite well preserved and the patient has only minor limitations, and also, let's say, if, if I follow up lung function, no evidence of disease progression, I would really wait follow the patients closely, let's say in a three to four months interval, by forced vital capacity measurements, including DCO, and if both values are fine, I can save the patients maybe one or two years in a period without treatment. We also must consider that if you start treatment, these are now data from the real life. We have it from Perfinitone in our own institution. You start a patient on treatment after one year, Around 70% are still on treatment. 30% have stopped the treatment due to uh, side effects which they could not tolerate or because they were off treatment. So a patient who has almost no symptoms, has good lung function, has a happy life, you treat this patient for one year, he gets side effects, maybe he can then finally not tolerate the drug one third, almost one third cannot do it, then you have lost already the chance with the one drug when you really would need the treatment, when his disease shows disease progression. So the ideal situation, of course, in the future would be if you would have a biomarker that is really highly associated with disease progression, which would say, okay, in this situation, even if there is previously the patient still, as I said, in a stable condition, normal lung function, but this biomarker is high up and 70-80% of patients with this high biomarker will progress in the future, I would say then this would also be a good indication to treat the patient. But this is still an aspect for future research. Currently, we have not such a highly predictive biomarker, much to my regret. Dr. Costabel, I would ask you to, to comment regarding using FVC threshold as a guide to initiate therapy for patients with IPF. You see, the current paper used a pre-specified subgroup analysis. This was pre-specified at the beginning of the trial after having seen this effect on thresholds below and above 70% forced vital capacity in post hoc analysis. Another threshold was tested. It was below and above 90% FVC and exactly the same outcome. Both subgroups had the same decline in FVC 
in the placebo groups and the same effect when they were treated with nintadenib. And furthermore, as Atal pointed out, there is quite a number of patients with emphysema included in the impulses trials. Actually, 40% of the patients had concomitant emphysema and there is the assumption that patients with emphysema have a slower FVC decline and maybe in relation to the severity of fibrosis, a better FVC than those without. Also, this might, of course, implicate, have implications on the treatment response. And again, those with emphysema or without emphysema on HRCT had exactly the same response to nintidanib treatment. And the same was true if you looked at those who had a definite UIP pattern on HRCT, that means with honeycombing, or those with a possible UIP and a surgical UIP on histology, compared to those who had maybe just a probable UIP pattern with traction bronchiectasis, but no honeycombing and no surgical biopsy. Again, the outcome was the same in both subgroups when you treated them with nintidanib. Having said that, I think, um, again, it is not good to have a FVC threshold for initiating treatment. So, Dr. Wells, I'd ask for your comments on what Dr. Kossabel just discussed. Ulrich's made two key points that I would love to comment on, and the first is the issue of the thresholds and the view taken by regulatory bodies. And I suppose before these analyses were done, it was possible to argue that perhaps the treatment effect would be less in milder disease. I don't think it's possible to argue that anymore. And that post-talk 90% threshold really does reinforce that the threshold that lies between the two threshold study 80% is not a logical basis on which to predict treatment effect, not at all. And so now that we have this information, I think we must be very, very critical of these thresholds. It is now possible to argue that if they continue, that they are ill-informed and they are discriminatory. They discriminate against those patients with smoking-related damage emphysema in whom there is a disproportionate preservation of FVC in spite of moderate to severe IPF. And they discriminate against those patients who started with high pre-morbid values. So I think these data are crucial in informing the debate about thresholds with regard to regulatory bodies. And then Ulrich also mentioned another key piece of information which has been presented, I think, in abstract form. Well, I know it has, but it is not yet a peer-reviewed observation in the literature and that is the fact that the treatment effect was identical in those patients meeting formal ATSERS, JRSALAT criteria for a diagnosis of IPF. And those patients who have a very high likelihood of IPF based on CT appearances that are suggested but not definitive and clinical reasoning. So these are patients who were referred to the impulses studies with a diagnosis of IPF, so the clinicians involved had applied clinical reasoning to reach that conclusion, taking aboard whatever information was available, including observations of longitudinal disease behavior. And then the scans indicated a high likelihood of IPF. And in that group of patients, what we know from the abstract presentations, which were definitive, is that disease progression was exactly the same in the two groups in the placebo arms, and the treatment effect was identical in the treated arms. 
So these patients, making up a third of the population, had the natural history and treated course of IPF. And that, I think, asks very penetrating questions about diagnostic criteria in IPF. However, we are, of course, referring to data that has yet to reach the literature in peer-reviewed form. But it is such exciting data that I think it's justified now to anticipate a debate about this. Thank you so much for a great discussion. After reviewing this study, there does not appear to be a clear group of patients that preferentially benefit from nintedinib for IPF, but rather it appears that there is slowing of disease progression across all groups of patients. Both of our author experts agree that FEC is not a good single variable to use as a threshold to guide treatment for IPF, and at this point, it is better to use a combination of clinical factors, FVC and DLCO from pulmonary function tests, as well as CT findings of severity of disease to guide decisions regarding initiation of treatment. Clearly, better tools are needed in the future to define phenotypes of IPF and responsiveness to treatment. And finally, both agreed that future studies of nintedinib and the other antifibrotic approved for IPF, perfenadone, should be done to evaluate the efficacy of these treatments in non-IPF fibrotic lung diseases. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Nitin Seem for the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine.